You may find it interesting that for my first message, as your associate pastor, I chose the topic, God Speaks Through Suffering and Tragedy. But I think all of us face difficulties in life. And especially now when you look at our world and our country, some of the conflicts, some of the differences of opinion, I think each one of us realizes that we depend on God more than anything else in our lives. And so it's good that we hear these messages. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 44, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 26. It's found on page 556 in your Bible. This is known as a, one of the Psalms of Lament. So we pick up kind of in the middle of that psalm at verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, and though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. church family, as you know, perhaps you've had friends or loved ones in this kind of situation, over the course of time, there are people that have become disillusioned with their faith and with God. In his book entitled Disappointment with God, author Philip Yancey addresses some of the struggles. He is wrestling with a close friend who has fallen away from the Christian faith. 
According to Yancey, we, we often have a perception of God as one who, who rolls up his sleeves and steps into our lives with power. But then he asks the question, what if God is silent? What if God decides to send us adversity or tragedy instead of happiness and joy? And how do we listen for, for God's small, quiet voice in those kinds of situations? Often we bring our expectations of how God should answer our prayers, how God should intervene in our lives. And indeed, some of those expectations literally set us up for disappointment. I want to read for you a comment written by a young lady who was struggling with her faith. She writes, within the Christian community, I keep hearing that phrase, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But I found to my dismay that this relationship is unlike any other personal relationship which I know. I never saw God or heard him or felt him or experienced even the most basic ingredients of a, a normal relationship. So either there's something wrong with what I was told, or there's something wrong with me. Well, if we, we expect our relationship with God to show the same kind of characteristics as any other human relationship, indeed, we are asking for disappointment. This young lady states that she was looking for the basic ingredients of a normal relationship. But the problem with that perspective is that you can't impose the limitations of humanity upon a God who is eternal and divine. In fact, there are times when you and I will not be able to see beyond the day see beyond our own human emotions. God allows harsh circumstance to interrupt our otherwise peaceful existence. Close family members may die at the prime of life. Cancer can invade the body of a young child, and suddenly our comfortable theology doesn't give us a simple solution. Or divorce papers are served and our convenient theological language becomes hollow against the reality of a family whose hopes are shattered and lives are filled with wounds and scars. And so there are times in our lives when the only thing that comes from our lips is, why us, O Lord? In the words of Psalm 44, we find the people of Israel crying out to the Lord. They're facing the cruel reality of death and persecution and captivity. As I indicated earlier, this is a psalm of lament, one of sorrow and mourning. Listen to a description of this psalm given by 
a respected commentator. He says, God seems to be casting them off, putting them to shame, allowing them to be defeated, slain, and carried into captivity, made a scorn and a derision. He no longer goes forth with their armies to secure them victory over their foes, but covers them with confusion. The description implies not just one single defeat, but a prolonged period of depression during which several of the armies have been beaten, several battles lost, multitudes slain, and great numbers carried away into captivity. That helps us understand the cry of anguish that's recorded in our text. If you look at verses 23 and 24, it says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our afflictions and our oppression? You see, the people of Israel were accustomed to winning their battles, and they did so in the name of the Lord. They boasted to their enemies that God was their strength. He protected them. And yet now, for no apparent reason, God has allowed a series of defeats to take place. And meanwhile, the people could find no just cause for God to bring this calamity into their lives. They had not knowingly transgressed his law. They had not forsaken their worship of Jehovah. In fact, listen to verses 17 and 18. It says, all this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. So you sense that tension. God, for no readily apparent reason, is silent. And meanwhile, the enemy is crushing the people of Israel in battle. The people who are supposed to be the holy representatives of the living triune God are being put to shame. They're being ridiculed by the pagan nations around them. And their cry is simple. Why us, O Lord? What have we done wrong? Why do you allow this tragedy in our lives? The people of Israel knew that suffering was a natural result of their foolishness or disobedience. They've experienced that before. They could understand suffering in the context of God showing them what they did wrong. But here, what they have difficulty understanding is suffering and tragedy that they're experiencing, and it's not because of their disobedience. God is allowing it somehow for their edification, for the strengthening of their faith. I believe you and I can relate to this kind of situation, this outcry. It's easy to connect prosperity to God's blessing and his favor, but it's hard to connect adversity and difficulties with God's favor. The two just don't seem to go together. 
And in light of that, I believe there are several misperceptions that prevent us from being at peace with our circumstances in life. And this morning, we're going to look at four of those misperceptions. The first one is this. There's a misperception often in the Christian community that obedience will automatically bring God's blessing and that suffering is the consequence of disobedience. Sometimes we hear that phrase, the Lord has blessed you, so obviously you are being obedient. There's an underlying assumption that a righteous life will result in material prosperity, protection from evil, freedom from distress and pain. So in other words, if we do what is right, God owes it to us to bless us. Well, we know that the book of Job proves this thinking wrong. In the account of Job, God allows Satan to completely destroy not only his physical possessions, but his children, and then his health. Everyone, except for Job himself, assumes that God is displeased with him, that he did something wrong. His wife says in chapter 2, verse 9, are you still holding on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, try to convince Job that he must have done something wrong in order for him to be experiencing all of this suffering in his life. Bildad says to Job in chapter 8, verse 6, if you truly are pure and upright, even now God will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Now Job refuses to associate his circumstances in life, his tragedy with disobedience. In fact, he merely says that it goes beyond his ability to understand and yet somehow God is at work. We cannot, as believers, associate suffering with disobedience. God allows hardship. He allows disabilities. He allows tragedy. He, many other difficulties he allows in our lives, even when we are faithful and obedient. Now, of course, we may be able to look back at our lives and see that God had a plan and a purpose. But right now, we don't necessarily understand. And maybe the true reason will wait until we are with our Lord in glory. So the first misperception is that obedience inherently brings God's blessing and suffering is due to disobedience. A second misperception is that somehow God's direct intervention into our lives would help us deal with suffering. One of the laments that's offered in verse 9, it says, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with your armies. God directly intervened in the history of Israel. 
And when he did so, it was obvious and it was powerful. If you recall in the Old Testament, soldiers in the armies of the enemies literally would turn against each other. Whole armies would be wiped out without the Israelite soldiers even lifting a sword. The assumption is now Israel is not winning battles. So God has abandoned her. If God would demonstrate his power, if he would intervene on their behalf, that would change their faith and their trust in him. But we need to realize that faith and obedience to God are not dependent upon God's direct intervention. I think, for example, of Luke 16, verse 31, that gives the parable of a rich man named Abraham and Lazarus, a poor man. And the rich man is the one who descends into Hades or hell. And it is the poor man who is with God in heaven. And the rich man begs him, says, can you send someone to my five brothers because they're about to join me? And Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Or I think back to the people of Israel as they were encamped at Mount Sinai. Think of the fact that they were in awe of the power and the glory of God's presence there as they waited for Moses. We're told in Exodus 19, God's presence was symbolized with lightning and fire and thunder, and there's this great cloud at the peak of the mountain. These were the people who had experienced God's power in the ten plagues. They had crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They had satisfied their thirst from water coming out of a rock. Their stomachs were still digesting the miracle of the manna in the desert. And yet they lost sight of God. And by the time Moses descends from the mountain, they're dancing like heathens around a golden calf. So the point is this. If we are unable to see God's hand at work in the ordinary circumstances of life, if we cannot trust his revelation in the Bible, even God's direct intervention would not strengthen our faith, or take away our doubts. A third misperception is that God's silence means that he is distant and far removed from us. In verse 23, it says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. The writers of Psalm 44, who are identified for us at the beginning of the psalm as the sons of Korah, they're not saying that God literally was sleeping, but they're questioning the silence of God. God promised to be with his people. He promised to be a covenantal and faithful God to them, and not only to them, but to their descendants after them. Yet, God reveals himself not only in those powerful 
appearances of his, but also in the quietness of the human heart through the working of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, God works through solitude and stillness. In his book, Philip Yancey writes, the Spirit will not remove all of our disappointments with God. The very titles that are given to the Holy Spirit, intercessor, helper, counselor, comforter, all imply that there will be problems in life. And the Spirit reminds us that such problems are temporary, that they're a prelude to eternal life with God. We who live now are not disadvantaged, but we are wonderfully privileged. For God has chosen to rely primarily on us to carry out his will on earth. In Psalm 46, verse 1, it says, God is with us. Be still and know that I am God. So the silence of God is sometimes God allowing our faith through his spirit to spring into action. In Psalm 139, we're told that God is always with us. We can't flee from his presence. Wherever we go, God will be with us. A fourth misperception is that our day-to-day -day problems in life are symptomatic of deeper spiritual issues. When Jesus ministered on earth, his concern was directed toward issues of faith and forgiveness and the presence of the evil one. For example, when he healed the lame, he addressed the forgiveness of sin. He looked at the heart of the individual. In so doing, Jesus never made a direct correspondence between their phys physical adversity and their spirituality. This created confusion often amongst the crowds. Their solutions to daily problems were all centered upon the physical world. They looked around, they saw poverty, they saw illness, they saw political oppression, and Jesus did too. And he wanted to provide freedom from their adversities. But his primary focus was on that person's relationship with God. He would focus on the attitudes which resulted from perhaps a lack of spiritual maturity. Often it was issues of pride or hypocrisy or legalism. So experiencing difficulties in life is not, will not be a spiritual issue as well. Physical adversity is a pathway in which we are able to grow and even to minister to others. We cannot assume that someone going through trials and difficulties is somehow spiritually weak or in need of admonishment from the Bible. Another example in John 5 verse 14, Jesus heals the invalid at the pool of Bethsaida and he says to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. 
So it wasn't a sin that occurred 38 years ago that caused this person's physical deformity. But Jesus, first of all, healed that physical deformity, deformity as a means to address his present issue in life. In chapter 9, verse 2 of John, the disciples see a man who's blinded from birth, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents since he's born blind? And Jesus replied, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So it is through those times of pain and difficulty that often we see the work of God displayed. Christ himself suffered not only the physical agony of the cross, but the silence of the Father. Remember, he called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In our own lives, sometimes it's difficult to trust. Yet God is at work. God is displaying his power and mercy and love. One author says, Endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it into glory. So hardships can be used as a means of bringing the glory to God. No one wishes for tragedy, yet tragedy and disappointment are means through which God can show the beauty of his electing love. Now, remember, however, that you may not think that a relationship with Jesus Christ will just automatically take away all of your suffering. I think often powerful testimonies to God's sustaining love come after a person experiences adversity. Those are the times when we need to completely rely on the grace of God as he carries us through. My father-in-law passed away from ALS. And I remember we prayed for God to intervene. We knew that it was a disease that you could not heal. We prayed for God, though, to cause some sort of healing. It didn't happen the way that we were hoping. He wasn't physically healed. But he never lost his voice, which is almost unheard of with someone with ALS. He was able to minister to God's faithfulness. He was a businessman, and, and employees would come in to his office and say, John, how can you keep on living with that diagnosis, and why are you here? And he'd say, let me tell you. And he'd proceed to share Jesus Christ. So we believe that that was the miracle of healing. He never lost his voice. When he was at the end of his time, there was a song that our children really enjoyed, and they gave the lyrics to him, and I believe also the song itself, by Laura Story. It's called Blessings. I'd like for you to listen closely. We pray for blessings. 
We pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need, yet you love us way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you're near? And what if trials in this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. And we cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not, this is not our home. It's not our home. Because what if your blessings came through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if the thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you're near? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst that this world can't satisfy? And what if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? What a beautiful song. Life in this fallen world brings pain and suffering. God may appear to be silent, but be assured that he is at work in the midst of your suffering. And he sends his Holy Spirit, not necessarily to cure, but most certainly to comfort. He helps us change that question, why us to Lord, why us Lord, into a prayer. Equip us, O Lord, that we can be witnesses to your sustaining grace. Amen. O Lord God, there are times in life when we, like the people of Israel, are facing difficult times. And we're seeking to understand why something is happening to us. And perhaps, like the people of Israel, it's not as if we have disobeyed you or abandoned you, and yet we see, we look around us and we see the difficulties, and we just wonder, where are you, O Lord? But Lord, we do have the trust and the confidence that even in the midst of those difficult times, that you do hear our prayers. 
that you will walk alongside of us through those difficult times. And Lord, help us to realize that perhaps the suffering, perhaps the aches in this life, the storms, the rain, those hard nights, truly point to our true home with you in heaven and our, your mercies in disguise. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.